This is the last speech that I will give from this floor as a member of Congress. I wasn't ready for my time here to come to an end so soon. It's a reality I'm still grappling with and I will be for a long time to come. I expected, or I at least hoped, to be here for as long as the voters of California's 25th district deemed me worthy of the honor of representing them. I thought I could make a difference here in making our community, our great country, and the world a better place for generations to come. I, like so many of my colleagues, ran for office because I believed that our political system was broken, controlled by the powerful and the wealthy, ignoring and failing the regular people that it's supposed to serve. I came here to give a voice to the unheard in the halls of power. I wanted to show young people, queer people, working people, imperfect people, that they belong here because this is the people's house. I fell short of that, and I'm sorry. To every young person who saw themselves and their dreams reflected in me, I'm sorry. To those who felt like I gave them hope in one of the darkest times in our nation's history, I'm sorry. To my family, my friends, my staff, my colleagues, my mentors, to everyone who has supported and believed in me, I'm sorry. To the thousands of people who spent hours knocking doors in the hot summer sun, who made countless phone calls, who sacrificed more than I could ever know to give everything they could in every possible way so that I could be here, I am so, so sorry. And to every little girl who looked up to me, I hope that one day you can forgive me. The mistakes I made and the people I've hurt that led to this moment will haunt me for the rest of my life and I have to come to terms with that. Ever since those images first came out, I've barely left my bed. I've ignored all the calls and the texts. I went to the darkest places that a mind can go, and I've shed more tears than I thought were possible. I've hidden from the world because I'm terrified of facing the people that I let down. But I made it through because the people who loved me most dragged me back into the light and reminded me that I was stronger than that. To those of you who were by my side in my worst moments, you know who you are. I love you, I'm so grateful, and I will never forget. And I'm here today because so many of the people I let down, people close to me, supporters, colleagues, people I've never even met, told me to stand back up, and that despite all of my faults, they still believed in me, and they were still counting on me. And I realized, that hiding away and disappearing would be the one unforgivable sin. I will never shirk my responsibility for this sudden ending to my time here, but I have to say more because this is bigger than me. I am leaving now because of a double standard. I am leaving because I no longer want to be used as a bargaining chip. I'm leaving because I didn't want to be peddled by papers and blogs and websites used by shameless operatives for the dirtiest gutter politics that I've ever seen and the right-wing media to drive clicks and expand their audience by distributing intimate photos of me taken without my knowledge, let alone my consent, for the sexual entertainment of millions. I'm leaving because of a misogynistic culture that gleefully consumed my naked pictures, capitalized on my sexuality, and enabled my abusive ex to continue that abuse, this time with the entire country watching. I am leaving because of the thousands of vile, threatening emails, calls, and texts that made me fear for my life and the lives of the people that I care about. Today is the first time I've left my apartment since the photos, 
taken without my consent, were released, and I'm scared. I'm leaving because for the sake of my community, my staff, my family, and myself, I can't allow this to continue. Because I've been told that people were angry when I stood strong after the first article was posted, and that they had hundreds more photos and text messages that they would release bit by bit until they broke me down to nothing, while they used my faults and my past to distract from the things that matter most. I'm leaving because there is only one investigation that deserves the attention of this country, and that's the one that we voted on today. Today, I ask you all to stand with me and commit to creating a future where this no longer happens to women and girls. Yes, I'm stepping down, but I refuse to let this experience scare off other women who dare to take risks, who dare to step into this light, who dare to be powerful. It might feel like they won in the short term, but they can't in the long term. We cannot let them. The way to overcome this setback is for women to keep showing up, to keep running for office, to keep stepping up as leaders, because the more we show up, the less power they have. I'm leaving, but we have men who have been credibly accused of intentional acts of sexual violence and remain in boardrooms, on the Supreme Court, in this very body, and worst of all, in the Oval Office. So the fight goes on to create the change that every woman and girl in this country deserves. Here in the halls of Congress, the fight will go on without me. And I trust so many of my colleagues to be strong on this front while I move on to one of the many other battlefields because we have an entire culture that has to change and we see it in stark clarity today. The forces of revenge by a bitter, jealous man, cyber exploitation and sexual shaming that target our gender and a large segment of society that fears and hates powerful women have combined to push a young woman out of power and say that she doesn't belong here. Yet a man who brags about his sexual predation, who's had dozens of women come forward to accuse him of sexual assault, who pushes policies that are uniquely harmful to women, and who has filled the courts with judges who proudly rule to deprive women of the most fundamental right to control their own bodies, sits in the highest office of the land. And so today, as my last vote, I voted on impeachment proceedings, not just because of corruption, obstruction of justice, or gross misconduct, but because of the deepest abuse of power, including the abuse of power over women. Today, as my final act, I voted to move forward with the impeachment of Donald Trump on behalf of the women of the United States of America. We will not stand down. We will not be broken. We will not be silenced. We will rise and we will make tomorrow better than today. Thank you, and I yield the balance of my time for now, but not forever. This is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Today we're going to be talking a bit about the fires and some updates surrounding PG&E before we discuss the situation surrounding Katie Hill. And then we're going to be taking a bit of a deep dive into two big district attorney races coming up here in California and one of them happening next week and another one happening uh, basically uh, over the next year and or so. Uh, how's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. I guess the, the thing I'm going to flag at the top here is uh, we have an election in Tucson on November 5th as well.
well, which is when the San Francisco DA's nice. race that we're talking about later is happening. Uh, yep. That one is uh, basically a... Uh, on a ballot measure put out by the People's Defense Initiative uh, to basically stop temp, uh, sorry, not Tempe, but Tucson police from cooperating with ICE and Customs and Border Patrol, uh, basically, or Customs and Border Protection, I guess is their technical name. Uh, but basically, yeah. here in Arizona, we have a law called SB 1070. It's colloquially known as the Show Me Your Papers law, and it basically requires local police agencies to enforce immigration law um, or risk losing funding from the state. Uh, what the the, the uh, sanctuary city law for Tucson would do is basically make it impossible for Tempe police to call in ICE or CBP um, if in the event of like traffic stops or like regular encounters with the public to check papers and do stuff like that. Uh, there's already being blowback from the elected officials in Tucson who say that it's going to threaten the city's funding, which it won't. The law is written a very specific way so that it doesn't cost the city any funding under SB 1070. But a state uh, representative here has already talked about writing legislation to revise SB 1070 to make it even stricter so that really? like every police department has to be the fascist arm of our fascist border patrol. And it's, it's absolutely crap. Uh, fortunately, the PDI ballot measure looks like it's going to win. It's got pretty good popular support. Uh, the woman who just uh, pretty much won the mayorship, she won the uh, primary in a very democratically heavy city, so it's assumed that she's going to win, but she has come out against it. Most of the elected officials are either against it or ambivalent on it because they are cowards. Uh, but Tuesday, huh. Tucson goes to vote, and so I'll let you all know how that turns out next week. But I'm hoping for the best because this is a really broad coalition of people that's come together. It's a lot of work being done by the DSA down in Tucson that has done amazing work writing very smart legislation, uh, basically taking this campaign from zero to 60 in an in an absurd amount of time getting all the signatures, getting it on the ballot, and then pushing all the way through the electoral campaign. So I've really got my fingers crossed, and I'm hoping that we're going to finally see more pushback here, not just in Tucson, but in Phoenix, in Flagstaff, and other cities in Arizona, where we're finally kind of trying to throw off the yoke of our incredibly stupid and reactionary statehouse. Um, it looks like we may, since the 70s, be able to flip to a Democratic majority at the state level, and that would be a really, really wow. huge thing, because Arizona Arizona uh, looks like a red state, but it is very purple. And I actually suspect that if we got more people to vote, we would be solidly, solidly blue, especially with the demographic changes and all the people moving here from places like Los Angeles and Chicago yeah. and New York, who are bringing a lot of progressive values and a lot of like desire to see a working city. So uh, if you get the chance, check out PDI Tucson, look into their Sanctuary City Initiative, and start thinking about ways that like you might be able to organize around this stuff at the local level, because ultimately that's how we're going to beat these kinds of like federal fascist policies, is we're going to cut them out at the knees at the local level. Uh, you've been super busy yourself. Y'all did some really <laughs> big stuff on Wednesday. Uh, they got some, some news coverage and stuff, so tell us about that. Yeah, so we had a, a huge coalition of folks uh, that was basically being, you know, headed up by folks from ACLU, Black Lives Matter, Baji, which is the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, uh, COCO, which is Community Coalition. Uh, you know, I was there wrapping ground game. Uh, we had a, a, a big, wide coalition, white people for black lives, all these people who are also very intimately linked with uh, the by Jackie 2020 protests that, that have been happening in front of the Hall of Justice every single Wednesday for the last two years and one week at this point. Um, basically, we took that same rally and started it early uh, in an effort to try to uh, really 
uh, go out there and, and, you know, we brought in uh, a number of uh, people from L.A. Voice uh, and other uh, religious leaders and, and other folks from across a huge coalition of community groups uh, to create this organization called this this co- coalition called Check the Sheriff. And uh, the plan was to try to serve the sheriff with a lawsuit that had been filed uh, by the ACLU on behalf of the families of victims uh, who are basically trying to just get some answers about what the hell happened to their loved ones. Uh, the sheriff's department has been willfully refusing, uh, in our in our view, uh, to comply with the requirements of SB 1421. Uh, there was a really just shocking story that came out uh, about a week or so ago where when uh, the ACLU had requested uh, information surrounding the Brady lists, uh, which is basically that's a list of, uh, you know, poorly behaving officers who are in uh, violation of any number of, uh, of of issues of you know having uh, use of force situations, uh, uh, domestic violence situations. Any any there are a number of different factors that can qualify a, a law enforcement officer to uh, be put on these so-called Brady lists. And the ACLU was looking to have the sheriff proactively release that information, and, and they were informed that the sheriff had effectively decided to no longer maintain those lists. Uh, and, and was saying that therefore they couldn't release the information because they weren't keeping track of it, uh, which is some really shady. Uh, one really, yeah, that, that's a hell of a lot of gall coming from the sheriff's department. Also, it's um, weird that yes. like back in the day they looked at oversight and said, "Oh, you know what? What if we keep a secret list of people who behave badly and don't tell well, anyone what so, those names are?" Yeah, and and it's weird because that list is also very. I, it's, the whole situation is all super screwed up. Like, like the reason why they were keeping that list was to make sure that they didn't have officers involved in trials who were potentially liabilities for the police department or for the sheriff's department because they have these uh, these track records that make them basically bad witnesses and and bad bad parts of prosecution, so they can't be relied upon. And I believe that was the the main reason for keeping that list was to help. Uh, ensure that they could have successful prosecutions. Um, but it's also a, 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 you know, a, a great tool for folks like the ACLU to really you know, demand accountability and transparency from the offices to get those lists. And uh, per SB 1421, we have a public right. The public has a right to know that information and to have it available. And the sheriff is basically saying, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And it's absurd. Mm. Anyway, the point is that this uh, this process, this this lawsuit, we were trying to get the lawsuit and, and uh, to the sheriff or to anyone within the department. And uh, we started off with a protest around uh, we, we started gathering around three. The actual action started around three thirty. So we were trying to get entry to the Hall of Justice, which the sign on the door says that it's open until four. Typically, it's open until five, but it's only open until four on Wednesdays because they close early because of the Black Lives Matter protests that have been womp happening in womp. front of the building. And so we got there a half an hour before they were supposed to close, found that the public entrance to the Hall of Justice, which is on the uh, temple, the temple side of the building, not on the Spring Strata building where the protests are are held, uh, was locked and barricaded. And there were about, you know, eight or so deputies hanging out just inside of the doors, uh, basically just ignoring us. Uh, they did eventually have one one of their deputies in charge or somebody come and 
briefly open up the door to tell us that we needed to have an appointment and ask if we had an appointment. Nobody there did have an appointment because, you know, per civil code in California, uh, the public is entitled to enter these public buildings and review public records anytime during business hours. Uh, so they kept us out. We knocked on the door for a solid half an hour. Uh, at one point, some guy uh, in one of the deputies came forward with um, basically like a riot helmet on and was Whoa. threatening to arrest uh, Molina and or one of the other folks involved uh, try, who were trying to hold open the door and, and ask for the, you know, whoever was in charge to come and listen to the demands from this group. We were, uh, you know, nonviolent, very much assembling and, and exercising our First Amendment rights. And they uh, decided to show us a, a show of force or just try to try their best to ignore us. Uh, during the entire process. I also think it's amazing that the guy had a helmet on and was threatening to arrest a college professor because he wouldn't want any errant knowledge to get oh, into yeah. that head of his. <laughs> yeah, it was it was insane. Um, but we so we ended up not being able to get in there. Uh, we then held uh, a press conference, uh, gave space to the families of these victims. Uh, it was another very moving uh, demonstration, very much in the same veins of what had happened last week, but this time with a focus on the, you know, the intersectionality of these issues because BLM has been demanding action from Jackie Lacey for years now, trying to get her to actually prosecute these cops who are uh, killing folks with impunity. And the reality is that it's not just Jackie Lacey that has that authority to actually implement the, the, the kinds of, uh, you know, justice that would, would help the community to heal from these uh, these wounds that have been received, but it is also the sheriff. Like they, the sheriff could do any number of things to help rein in his deputies who are acting, you know, as though they're above the law. And because because of the what Jackie Lacey has been doing, they effectively are able to operate above the law. So this was really a moment for us to get uh, these groups together to to show the the similarities between the uh, the demands of these two. Uh, separate movements and really try to bring everything together. So after the uh, after trying unsuccessfully to get into the building, we briefly shut down the intersection uh, of Temple and Spring. Uh, had the cops called on us, they ended up holding their distance because we only held the intersection for uh, about five minutes instead of the thirty minutes that we held it for last week. Uh, didn't end up getting any citizen notifications uh, <laughs> telling me that you know there was a protest going on this time around. Um, but we did, uh, we did eventually, you know, finish holding up, holding that, that space in front of the hall of justice, uh, and then moved on. Uh, a number of us moved on to, there was a, a BLM fundraiser that was happening the same day, uh, right after the vigil. And then there was also an opportunity for a number of us to head to, um, Temple city to do a, uh, a bit of bird dogging on the sheriff, uh, with some direct action, trying to hold him accountable and uh, you know, gave us an opportunity to, to try to present the the lawsuit to the sheriff himself. Um, mm -hmm. He is a slippery one. He yep. refused to do anything to to you know listen to a, a grieving grandmother who tried to present the lawsuit to him. He straight up refused to make any motion. Uh, there were two uh, deputies that were sat in the front row at a weird like forty five degree angle where they very clearly were. 
meant to look like they were part of the public, but very clearly also not because they were uniformed deputies and the way they were yeah. sitting, they nothing could both in, Nothing view... intimidating about that. Oh, yeah, no, these two, these two rather large uh, shaved head folks uh, that were sitting there with... Uh, the way that they were angled, they could easily see everything that was going on and were basically the, uh, the two pillars of enforcement that would prevent anyone uh, from being able to get up there and actually approach the sheriff. Uh, it was a very tense uh, situation, but we ended up uh, coming away from it with uh, a lot of very, some, um, some good insight as to what is going on. Uh, and, and some ideas about how best to move forward. Uh, unfortunately, one uh, the the sister of Paul Rea, who was one of the victims uh, of uh, the sheriff's deputy's violence that was there at the town hall, uh, she and her family ended up going back to the site of the shooting where their where Paul was uh, was killed, and they had a bit of a vigil there. Uh, my understanding is that the uh, sheriff's deputies showed up in force afterward. Um, Paul's sister was trying to record the event, and uh, she ended up getting arrested uh, for filming. Is my understanding? So that that is a, a very wait. Troublesome, she got arrested uh, turn of for events. she got arrested for filming on a public yes, street. That was yeah. Interesting. Seems yeah. I so don't know we're, illegal. This is. That yeah, so that 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 is uh, that was my that was what I was told of uh, of the event at this point. We'll see if there's any updates uh, next week. But right now, it sounds like there was. Uh, it's unclear if this was some kind of like a retaliatory situation or what, because uh, Paul Rea's sister had been at the town hall and had been, you know, voicing uh, demands for justice from the sheriff at this town hall, and then shortly within a couple of hours of the town hall ending uh she was then uh being detained by the sheriff's deputy so uh not saying the two are necessarily related but they seem pretty freaking related so we'll see what ends up happening um it, it, the whole situation was a bit of a mess but it's it's shaping up there's a lot of uh a lot of work going into this coalition and people are beginning to wake up because of uh, in no small part uh due to the incredibly uh, detailed and dogged covering of the sheriff and his bullshit by the reporters at the LA Times. Uh, Maya Lau, who has done incredible reporting on this issue for a while, she's out with maternity leave right now, but uh, her colleagues have picked up where she left off and they are not letting it go. So we had uh, at least one LA Times reporter in the room for this event. Um, I haven't seen any articles come out yet, but there should be some ongoing reporting and, and uh, capturing of these stories. And uh, you and I are both working on some of that stuff as well. So watch out for that campaign as it moves forward. It's going to be the hashtag check the sheriff. Uh, yep. that's the, uh, that's what everything is organizing under. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, an incredible opportunity. It went very well and we're going to, you know, only be building from here. Yeah, no. And the, the sheriff's department is a bigger mess than LAPD. Um, oh, it has yes. less of the, uh, kind of public knowledge of it. And it's, it, it's something we've obviously covered a whole lot, but you know, this, one lawsuit doesn't even scratch the surface of the deputy gangs, of the absolute cruelty that's going on inside, like, Men's Central Jail, the crime against humanity that that facility is, where yes. they just had to quarantine more than 300 inmates because of a mumps outbreak, because, like, literally, it Holy is an really? absolute hellhole. Yep. So, like, 
Men's Central Jail How? is just a crime against humanity in the middle of downtown LA that like you can literally walk to from Union Station. Like it's I think a mile, it's less than right a mile from it, City Hall. Like yeah. literally two of the biggest jail facilities in this country, Metro Detention Center and then El- Men's Central Jail are just right there in the middle of downtown LA and you can totally miss them if you don't know what to look for. Like it's very easy to not see them or to ignore them, but they're just right there. The incarceral state lives in downtown Los Angeles and we don't talk about that nearly enough, but, but we will definitely be talking about this more. So before we get too oh, yeah. bogged down there, um, so everything's still on fire. Um, yes. Fantastic. There's a new I one. Yes. Yeah. I, I, every day. It, so I, it, before we get into this, like I was thinking about this last night and it's always hard to think about macro trends like wildfires and climate change in you know terms of a few years because memory is a very slippery thing. But it feels to me like this is a faster pace of fires than we've seen in a while. Like I don't remember this many fires cropping up this quickly in the past. And I could be wrong about that. Maybe it was just smaller fires because California always has a couple thousand fires uh, you know, over the course of a year, mainly out in the uh, uninhabited areas of the, the state where like, there aren't a lot of people affected, there aren't a lot of structures destroyed. But the number of fires in LA and Ventura County which are, are and Riverside County now, which are all very heavy populated, uh, seem, uh, seems like a faster pace than I remember in previous years. I, I, and, you know, anecdotally, I am extremely inclined to agree with you on that. I don't know what the statistics are, but it really does feel like this is this this fire season got off to a faster, uh, heavier hitting start than uh, fire seasons previously. I mean, I know last year, last year, uh, San Francisco was just completely enveloped in that choking cloud of smoke uh, from the fires up in Sonoma County. Uh, and I mean, they're, they're still dealing with a lot of the same issues this year from uh, the Kincaid fire, but it's, it, it feels, this year feels more intense than last year. And I mean, yeah, uh, it's knowing that that's the way that it feels now. I'm terrified about what's going to happen in the next month before the rains start to come in because we last, last year we had you know, the campfire. And we, yeah, oh, the, the, that's, that's once the rains come in, yeah, we get to deal with all that shit too. But the incredibly deadly fires that we had, uh, I think those were both in, um, in, in November last year. So we're just getting into like the, the peak danger zone when it comes to, uh, deadly fires here in California and fire season is all year long. Yeah. And then those, those, like you said, those mudslides, that's the, uh, that's the thing that a lot of people forget about, but it's those are just as deadly uh, and shut down things for uh, even longer periods of time with the impact that they have on infrastructure because, uh, you know, fire burns things out and it takes a while to get those power wires uh, restrung and rebuild the structures. But when you're talking about, you know, thousands of tons of earth that just liquefy and roll down the the hillside and cover up roads and, and just sweep buildings off foundations or move the foundations as well, like, the the impact that those mudslides have is incredible and so that's the uh you know once the as soon as the fires are done then the rains start coming in and the, the danger just amps up rather than you know tamping down so yeah so uh, let's, just to uh, give, let's uh, give a quick rundown on the fires here yeah exactly so the maria fire erupted last night in ventura county and uh it it, it started it started at the top of a uh, a mountain where they've got a bunch of um 
transmission equipment and it's unclear as to what the spark was caused by, but it has already blown up to more than 8,000 acres uh, in a very short period of time. Yeah, uh, some the of the Getty images fire, coming out of Ventura were apocalyptic looking with the fire kind oh, of crusting the hillside right over the, the cities. It's uh, And right around the uh, Santa Clara River, which has a lot of uh, businesses and homes that kind of like flow along that waterway. Yeah, and then we had the, the Getty fire here uh, is still burning. Uh, as of this morning, it was uh, 745 acres that had burned, 66% contained. Uh, but the erratic winds that we had last night have forced officials to really basically like leave the previous broad evacuation, evacuation orders in place uh, for the last couple of days because they just do not know where this is going to be going. Uh, fortunately, it has been contained to relatively minor amounts of structure damage and nobody has been hurt so far. Uh, the massive Kincaid fire is only 68% contained. Uh, it has injured four folks over the last eight days that it's been burning uh, and it has destroyed, uh, it's burned 78,000 acres, which is an incredible amount, uh, destroying 352 structures and damaging a further 55. Uh, we also had the Easy Fire breakout here uh, up near the Ronald Reagan Library, I believe, is what, which this one was. Uh, and it burned uh, 1,723 acres. It's only 10% contained as of this morning. Uh, it did not burn down the Ronald Reagan Library, but it was getting close. As long as the Orion Contra docs are safe, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> I mean, also, this is another one. Like, I was reading a, a small story about how they used goats uh, to kind of keep the brush yeah. at bay and like, come on, goats. Like, I like you, but, you know, it's the Reagan Library. Um, we actually have used goats in a number of places to maintain uh, the brush all around Los Angeles. It's really one of those funny things. Like, they, uh, they were doing it with um, the area by Angel's Flight in downtown L.A., so it was really weird a couple of years ago when it got really overgrown because of all the all the rain that we had received and then suddenly there were just goats chilling in downtown LA right on the hillside above a metro station and it was just a bizarre sight um yeah but back to the fires we had the hillside fire uh, also here in southern california only only 200 acres so far uh, 50% contained. The 46 fire, 300 acres, 70% contained, fortunately. Uh, PG&E is saying that they've restored power to, uh, quote-unquote, essentially all of the 1.1 million or so homes and businesses that they had cut power to on Saturday and Tuesday, uh, which is you know part of that rolling blackout process that has uh, been much discussed in the news of late and uh, seems to be a current fixture of uh, our reality right now. Yeah, according to the LA Times fire map, which for the, the time being, uh, the LA Times is dropping their paywall on their wildfire coverage, so that's pretty useful. Um, I also like, I encourage you to uh, subscribe to the LA Times if you can, uh, because they did unionize their newsroom and supporting those journalists, uh, I think is a good thing as far as they're unionized. Absolutely. But it's also like, you know, it is a corporately owned media outlet. Um, well, it, no, I, I take that back. It's owned by uh, Patrick, Sean, uh, and they moved down Same to El Sean, Segundo, yeah. which is, uh, yeah, sorry, thank you for that. Um, it's all good. But so it's it's kind of, you know, uh, a little bit of a pragmatic compromise. But anyways, uh, to get back to the subject at hand, according to their fire map, uh, there are 14 wildfires burning in California right now. Um, it Last night it was 15. I believe one of them came into full containment last night. Um, but it stretches the length of the state. Like, this is not 
a localized emergency in any stretch. And if you just kind of zoom the map out to look at the western states uh, up into Canada, there's a good 30 to 40 fires burning across the continental west and parts of western Canada. Uh, This is... This is it. This is the the normal. It's not the new normal. This is just the normal now. Yeah. So moving from the catastrophe that is California's wildfire season to another catastrophe seated here in California, uh, last week, uh, last Sunday, actually, October 27th, Katie Hill announced her resignation. So I'm going to go into this one kind of in depth. Um, and to sort yeah. of preface this, you know, we talked a lot last year about the work that Ground Game did with our, our allies at Food and Water Action. Uh, we ran an independent expenditure for Katie Hill's campaign to unseat Steve Knight. Uh, we specifically focused on the Porter Ranch neighborhood, which is situated around the Aliso Canyon gas facility, and in many ways is still suffering from the existence of that facility. The Saddle Ridge fire ripped through that community. It didn't destroy many homes there, but it displaced a lot of people. Uh, it sparked a couple of like mystery fires on the big mountain filled with gas, which SoCal Gas... Yeah. You know, said over and over again, it's not related to the fact that we're storing, you know, billions of cubic feet of natural gas in this mountain. Don't worry about the the dirt just burning. Like, it's that's normal. That's just a normal thing that happens on top of a gas storage facility. You know, and so, like, around Aliso Canyon and Porter Ranch, like, the people who live there get their benzene levels checked every couple of months by their doctors um, because it's not just methane that's leaking out of that mountain. There's a lot of toxic stuff coming out of there. And Katie Hill promised that she would shut down Aliso Canyon, that that would be something that she would fight for in Congress and something that we, you know, saw as worth fighting for. And also, you know, in the pragmatic compromise that is electoral politics, uh, Katie Hill is better than Steve Knight any day of the week. And I don't want to, you know, I want to go into this section clearly stating that I don't personally agree with everything that Katie Hill did when she got to Congress, Um, that I didn't personally agree with every single view that she had, but viewing electoral wins is an incremental step towards a more just society, replacing a fascist Republican with a more centrist, left-leaning Democrat is a win. It's not the complete win. It's not the end of the fight, but it's a step in the right direction. So, you know, we kind of entered into this understanding that we're a more radical orientation Katie Hill would ever be. She's much more friendly with uh, police officers than we would like, much more friendly with the defense industry than we would like, not as uh, foot forward with climate change. Like she has not, she did not back the Green New Deal. When she got to Congress, she immediately joined a very centrist caucus. Um, You know, she is her own person. She is able to make the decisions about how she wants to run her office and her campaign and her political stances. At the same time, I think that for a lot of folks, they see entrance into electoralism as an all or nothing. That if you're backing a candidate, it's because you agree with everything that they do. And I think that that's a poor way to orient yourself within a movement. And that we do have to understand that pragmatic compromise is a part of the equation. It is not a fatalistic compromise that you should make. It is not one that you are forced to make. And I don't lose any respect for friends of mine who do not want to do electoralism, who don't want to see um, their politics compromised by entering into that sphere. At the same time, budgets are decided at a national, state, and local level to the tune of billions of dollars a year. If you don't have someone representing your interests at that table, you're going to be locked out. And fighting for someone like Katie Hill is a way to get 
better people into those seats later on, which isn't the most fulfilling answer. But anyways, with that preface uh, done at the top, on October 18th, Red State, which is a very conservative publication, published photos of Katie Hill and a female staffer, along with statements from her estranged husband, Kenny Heslop, uh, alleging that Katie Hill had been engaged in an affair with a male staffer at a congressional office and had been involved with at least two staffers at her campaign staffers, that is. Heslip, in his statements, said that Hill had talked him into a polyamorous relationship with a female campaign staffer and also accused her of ongoing infidelity with a male, with a male staffer. Now, this is uh, an interesting one because the campaign staffer would be an unethical relationship, I think. You know, in, in any yeah. uh, kind of metric you're looking at, sleeping with someone who is your employee is yeah. not a good move. Like, that's unethical or at least dynamics. ethically questioning questionable Absolutely. yeah not something that you should do and something you can fix like if you really want to be in a relationship with that person just have them not work for you anymore like there yes. are ways to fix that uh now when it comes to the relationship with her camp with her congressional staffer that one's a bigger charge uh because though that is uh, explicitly outlawed, well, not explicitly outlawed, but explicitly violates uh, new ethical constraints put on Congress in 2018. So yes. before the new laws came into effect for, for like congressional ethics, if a staffer accused a congressperson of being in a relationship with them or sexually harassing them or sexually assaulting them, that staffer would have to go to counseling and then go through mediation. And any penalties or settlements that were paid out were paid out by the taxpayers. Uh, in 2018, Representative Barbara Comstock of Virginia uh, pushed bills to change those laws at both levels. So now uh, you are able to sue as a staffer. You don't have to go into mediation. And if there is a settlement that uh, comes out of the alleged affair or the, the confirmed affair, that's paid by the congressperson. It's not paid yep. by taxpayers, which is a huge win because, like, Congress paid out millions of dollars over a decade for these oh, yeah. uh, illicit affairs. And for the most part, we never found out about them, even though we were the ones fitting, footing the bill. But it took yeah. until 2018 for that to be the rule in Congress, even though that's been the rule in most private business and like most other aspects of society for decades and it was really yeah. an outgrowth of the me too movement so when people say what has me too done it's like well it made congress a slightly less horrible place and made congress people and senators actually personally accountable for their bad behavior yeah i gotta say that that the the change from having the taxpayers cover any settlements to having those monies being paid specifically by the congressperson uh, or, or whichever staffer is accused of, uh, of this, you know, harassment or, or breaches of, uh, of the ethics code, those, that change alone is a huge win from, from an accountability perspective, because we heard about, you know, in the wake of the Me Too movement getting rolling, the, the number of, of these cases that we got to find out about and that forced, uh, so many senior politicians to step down uh, was just absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, as you said, it was millions of dollars that we, the taxpayer, had been paying to cover up the shitty behavior of some of our elected officials. And this was behavior that we was, were, were, were largely unaware of because of the way that uh, you know that that forced arbitration uh, was being handled and the types of uh, non-disclosure agreements and everything else. So yep. it made it very easy for very shady, shitty behavior by our elected officials to basically go unchecked 
for decades. And so these this is a this these rule changes were uh, effectively a, a a major win for us. And so the the thing that really kind of kicked this all off with the Red State article was the allegation of this affair with a congressional office staffer, which automatically triggered a House Ethics Committee investigation into Hill. Yes. And that's sort of a different level of committee that actually has subpoena power over members of Congress, can launch essentially criminal investigations against them, uh, can bring people in to testify, uh, can rule on you know the ethics or illegality of certain situations. Now, to make... To, put a really fine point on this. Neither Red State nor any other outlet has published any evidence of Hill's relationship with a congressional staffer. This is Correct. only an allegation made by her soon-to-be ex-husband, who Hill has also accused of being abusive. So I really want to flag that. Hill has completely denied the relationship with a congressional staffer, saying that that never happened, but has admitted to the relationship with campaign staffers and said that that was a mistake that she made, that she was in a weird part of her marriage, that she made some decisions that she doesn't feel great about. And is understandable. Um, it doesn't really go to the ethics of what she was doing at the time, but it is like good to hear her admit that these were probably mistakes, and mistakes outside of like pictures of this stuff got out. You know, it's not just about the fact that evidence came out that revenge porn was released, it's also about the fact that like she acknowledged that these were not some of the, the best decisions that she has made in her personal or political life. Now, where things get really, really um, I don't want to say interesting, I guess maybe like Machiavellian, is when you look at who was publishing the articles uh, for the Daily Mail and Red State. And that is a woman named Jennifer Van Lahr. Now, Jennifer Van Lahr is listed by Red State as a deputy managing editor. What they do not mention in that bio is that she was a campaign advisor to Steve Knight. And that is a huge huge flag here because Steve Holy Knight shit, yeah. has already thrown in and said he is running for CA25 again. Yep. As soon as this stuff came out, almost like they planned it, almost like Steve Knight maybe knew wait, what wait. was happening here. Are you saying that this was a political hit job? Oh my oh my Buddha, that would that would be an in <laughs> insane thing for us to say, Chris. That would be so crazy and unhinged of us. But yeah, no, that's exactly what's happening here, I think, in my like unlearned and amateur oh, opinion. It, it you know, Jennifer Van like Lahr basically was a political hit person in this case, uh, and she did her job very well. I'm sure she'll be rewarded very, very well by some of the most ghoulish people we have in our state and on our national politics for taking down a fairly progressive-ish a uh, new congressional representative in the most disgusting and misogynistic way possible. And I think it's really interesting yeah. also that like Jennifer Van Lahr is also a woman who has now made her mark on the national discourse by publishing revenge porn. Um, revenge porn, which like I'm not going to describe the photos here. I don't want to, you know, pretend I, I don't want to give them any more play, but like none of this stuff is super scandalous. Like marijuana is legal in California. Smoke a fucking bong. Don't wear any clothes yep. when you do it. Who cares? But it's come out in the last couple of days that uh, Kenny Heslip, who's the, the soon-to-be ex-husband here, was shopping the story around more than a month before it came out. So this was confirmed by BuzzFeed uh, talking to a podcaster in uh, Santa Clarita named Stephen Daniels, who runs a locally focused podcast up there, which, like, shout out to you, Stephen Daniels. I, I feel that. Uh, but basically, Heslip <laughs> hit him up uh, through text, I believe, and said, hey, do you want to hear the whole story on the marriage? Uh, Daniels, for his part, uh, 
uh, and you can go, I'll, I'll put the, the BuzzFeed article link in there uh, in the description, said, yeah, I don't really want to air your dirty laundry. I'm not interested in the story. And then pass the information off to Katie Hill's uh, congressional office to be like, hey, Katie's ex-husband is shopping something around. I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it is. At the same time that Heslip was doing this and was getting pushback from Daniels, who was like, I'm not interested, Heslip was teasing the fact that he was shopping this information around to other media outlets and that screen caps of his discussion with Daniels would be included in those discussions. They weren't. Uh, those screen caps were included in the BuzzFeed reporting about this. Now, Heslip... Uh, through his family, sort of, uh, has claimed that he was hacked. Now, Heslip hasn't made what? a direct oh, public statement no. on this. Instead, no. Heslip's dad came out and said, oh, he thinks he was hacked because he was having computer problems, which, um, no. That's not how He's this works. He's lying. That is not how this so works. So Badly, and also that's the other thing. He never contacted the police. He never con he never contacted the Capitol Police Department in D.C. Which, like, if one was actually concerned that they were being hacked and they had a spouse in Congress, that's who you would contact is the Capitol Police. Like, they would be the ones to handle that sort of stuff that was happening. So, you know, I, I don't think that there's much water to be held by Heslip's, you know random statement that he may have been hacked, um, especially because that's like. That is a really weird series of events and also would link back to, like, who do you think was leaking it to Red State? You know, like, also, Heslip here... Also, why would you keep that those photos? If you didn't intend to do something with them, why would you keep those photos? If you're going through an acrimonious divorce, why would you keep those photos? When you break up with someone, just delete their nudes, folks. Just be the be a good person and just delete those nudes just like yeah. treat it like their body and like you don't have access to that anymore get rid of them it's okay <sighs> you will live it'll be fine and then like in the off chance you do get hacked like there's nothing to be leaked there you nod, go. nod wink wink so this all kind yeah. of like came to a head very quickly, right? The, the stories were published on October 18th. On October 27th, Hill announced her resignation from Congress, citing the threat of further harassment at the impetus of her, her soon-to-be ex-husband. She said specifically in her statement that she released that she was told that other photos that are more explicit would be released, Ugh. and that uh. that would come out, and that would be a trickle that would continue through the campaign, which is explicit uh, political intimidation and shaming of someone for being a human being with a body and having a sexual existence. You know, this yeah. is like the most disgusting, misogynistic stuff that you can ever, ever put together. And it's just an absolutely wild story that a congresswoman from the state of California has been taken down by revenge porn from her shitty, broke ex-husband. And that's another thing that Heslop has complained about is that like when they became estranged and when they separated, he'll cut him off. And he no longer has access to her money, which has been economically hard for him, um, because I guess getting a job oh, is just not Kenny's thing. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, I feel Come for you, on. Kenny. Get yourself a union. So uh, <laughs> Hill was not the first bisexual elected to Congress. That uh, uh, that was Kristen Cinema, who is currently my senator here in the state of Arizona. Uh, she was the first openly bisexual person ever elected to any level of Congress. But Hill's the first bisexual elected to Congress in California, which is still a big win. Before she went to Congress, yeah. she was the executive director of the LA-based nonprofit PATH, which is People Assisting the Homeless, which works with LA's unhoused population to provide services, shelter beds, and placement in permanent housing. 
it's the path, path still does really great work. They're still they down do. on Skid Row. Um, they're incredibly active, and if you are looking for someone to volunteer with, they're a, a really good way to spend your time. Now, let's talk about the revenge porn aspect of this, because California has laws on the books against releasing revenge porn, which is basically releasing explicit or personal photos for the purpose of shaming or intimidating someone. Uh, it's a misdemeanor that is punishable by six months in jail and or a $1,000 fine for the first offense. Uh, it can escalate to a year in jail for your second and subsequent convictions. Now, this specifically, like, the law specifically uh, prohibits, one, intentionally distributing images depicting another person engaging in sexual behavior or their intimate body parts, two, while understanding that those images were intended to be confidential, three, with the intent to cause that person to suffer emotional harm, and four, causing that person to suffer distress. So, just like... In my non-JD having understanding of what's happened here, uh, Heslip's alleged actions here check off all of these boxes. Um, and yeah. he achieved his goal. You know, I'm not sure if that's what he thought was going to happen, but for the people at Red State who published this, that's exactly what they wanted to see happen. Um, you know, Hill was clearly targeted by an abusive husband and by GOP staffers who were willing to skirt the edges of the law to take down a congresswoman who bested them in a hotly contested election. And I still remember that election night, you know, when everyone else went to bed, Katie Hill was behind. And I think at like three in the morning, I hit up the group chat to be like, oh, my God, we're ahead by like 200 votes. And then it seesawed for a couple of days, and I believe four days out from that election, Hill took the lead and never lost it. And for what it's worth, you know, ground game turned out around 2,000 votes, which was a lot of work and a lot of man hours and was totally, totally worth it to see Steve Knight go down in flames. Now, Red State, I want to talk about a little bit. So... Red State is a well-known and established right-wing mouthpiece started by first two-name haver Eric Erickson, who is a conservative <laughs> evangelical radio host and media personality who espouses basically like the worst opinions possible yes. for money. He's also vehemently anti-LGBTQ, which may explain why Red State chose to publish the Hill material. Like this is very much in line with Eric Erickson's patriarchal, heteronormative view that society should be run by men in a very conservative way where the kind of Christian idea of marriage should be the center of our society. Now, something that's worth noting is that Eric Erickson was actually an elected city council member in Macon, Georgia, uh, where he resigned before the end of his term, and people note that he had an abysmal attendance record while in office. So Erickson is someone who spits a lot of fire but doesn't have a lot of substance. Like, when he yeah. had the chance to make actual social change, he was just too lazy to actually show up and realized that he can make better money by just screaming vitriol on the radio and then screaming yep. vitriol on the internet. Uh, and to their uh, credit, I guess, CNN <laughs> has Eric Erickson on all the time to just be an absolutely terrible human being because why not give more oxygen to that asshole? Like, I, <laughs> why not just make sure that that guy gets to spout whatever absolutely ridiculous and harmful bullshit he wants on the most watched cable news on the planet? Just, just let him do that. Great freaking idea, Ted Turner. Thank you. I mean, for they that. do they do this they do the exact same shit with the and on the New York Times where they're giving platforms to people who absolutely do not deserve these platforms. Like I get Ed Bug shouldn't is this have opinion desire. columns. <laughs> exactly. Like there is this uh, inexplicable desire in these mainstream media outlets that say, "Hey, we want to be fair and balanced. We want to show both sides of an argument." It's just like you guys you guys realize that like 
one of these sides of this argument has no basis for deserving any of that kind of recognition and platforming. Like, there is absolutely no reason why uh, Brett Stevens should be getting a, a, a column in the New York Times. There is no reason why Eric Erickson should be allowed to sit up there and spit vitriol on CNN. Like, we do not need to hear the opinions of these people because these people do not have opinions worth hearing. We've moved on as a society. They do not have a place in us anymore. Like, stop it. Yeah. No, back in like 1997, I want to say, Bill McKibben published a seminal essay in The Nation, uh, basically decrying the state of, of climate journalism at the time. And this was, you know, this was 20 years ago. This was before yeah. we really knew that how settled the science was. But he basically was like, look, for the last decade and a half, we've known about climate change and global warming. And yet we still give airtime to people who deny it because the media has this idea that if I say the sky is blue and someone else says, no, the sky is red, then we deserve equal time because we have different opinions and that's it's objectivity. So, so it's not stupid. It's absolutely stupid and it's toxic and it's destructive to our society because it allows people who, like you said, don't have a rational argument or a basis in science or reality to be heard just to counterbalance someone who does have that basis. And yep. it, it leads us into you know, the situation where we do get a Trump, where you do have someone who is able to lie and obfuscate and make, you know, just like basically muddy the water and then pretend that the muddy water is safe to drink. You know, Red State, for what it's worth, wasn't a big Trump supporter before his election, but yeah, boy howdy, once he got elected, Eric Erickson's oh, criticisms yeah. of him all evaporated into the stratosphere, just poof, completely went away. Yeah. Um, especially, in, and the weird thing was, you know, Eric Erickson was critical of Trump for the way he spoke and his lack of civility. He never went after Trump for being a rapist, for being someone who sexually assaulted women. Like, that was never Erickson's beef with Trump because Erickson doesn't fundamentally believe in the bodily autonomy of someone who doesn't have a penis. So to kind of, like, put a bow on this one and wrap this one up, what we just saw happen is the weaponization of our media in this toxic environment where there was no adult in the room to stop this from happening. There was no way to counterbalance Red State once this got out. There was no way to put a lid on this. And the people that should be defending Katie Hill, like Nancy Pelosi, are instead shaming someone for having naked photos. You have a body. If you want to take photos of your body naked, do it. No one should shame you or say, no, you shouldn't have done that. Look how embarrassing it is. The argument isn't you should be ashamed of your body and hide it if you want to have political power. It's if somebody tries to shame you for it, we ignore that person and move on with our lives. We don't yeah. give them more oxygen and more air. Now, Heslip and Red State made a really coup de grace move when they accused Hill of having an affair with a staffer because they knew they knew that would trigger an investigation and that would be pressure she could not get out from under and that yeah. would be pressure that would, br would bring to light other personally embarrassing details and that people would judge her for being a woman who dares to have sex, who dares to have a not conventional relationship. And this is the kind of absolutely stupid heteronormative bullshit that we need to get away from. This is the kind of family values that Joe Biden talks about in a good way that is actually poisonous to all of us, that is exclusive, that is judgmental, that is shameful. And we as a society are better than that. We don't need to be afraid of someone who's not heterosexual. We don't need to be afraid of someone who enters into a polyamorous relationship. We do need to demand better from people in power, like Hill is right to apologize for her... her 
ethically questionable relationship with her campaign staffers. Like, that was a bad move. Should it have cost her her job? No, I don't think it should have. Should any of this have cost her her job? No, it definitely should have. Will anything happen to Kenny Heslip? Yeah, probably not. Doesn't matter that, like, Hill keeps her residence in Los Angeles County where ostensibly Jackie Lacey could be investigating this and go after Heslip. Doesn't matter that, like, a crime was committed in full public view and the evidence is still published online. There will probably be no comeuppance for Heslip. But, oh, my Buddha, I really hope her defense attorney just destroys the guy. And I say that with as much vitriol as I can muster. Because this is the lowest of the low. This is political hit job gone completely right and something that needs to end. And if you're in CA25, Steve Knight's running again, punish him at the ballot box. Punish the business owners that donate to his campaign. Do not give those people more fuel. This is the kind of culture that we can cut against and materially fight, and we need to do that. So... Christy Smith is currently in the assembly up there. She's running for Congress. She would be a really good replacement for Katie Hill. I would suggest you look into her. Other people will probably be throwing in. There's going to be good opportunities to keep the seat blue, and we really, really need to do that. So Absolutely. Yeah, uh, thanks. I hate it. Uh, Let's move on to PG&E, which is another thanks, I hate it situation, but (laughs) will probably get me a little bit less yelling mad. Yeah, so this is it's a a turn of events that is uh, heartening to me at least, and 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 I'm assuming to you as well, Bushido. Like we've been discussing the concept of uh, municipalizing uh, PG&E for quite some time, and uh, it was really great to see. Like Huffington Post was publishing an article just uh, what was it within the last 24 hours, saying quoting. Uh, Rep. Ro Khanna uh, saying, quote, he called for a public takeover of the investor-owned utility Pacific Gas and Electric Company as anger mounts over widespread blackouts aimed at keeping electrical equipment from igniting wildfires, end quote. And uh, in the interview that that HuffPo actually had with Khanna, uh, he told them that, quote, the for-profit motive does not work. The public utility is a much better option because you're not having to worry about maximizing shareholder returns and you will make the safety investments that are necessary, end quote. So, I mean, there's, we're going to, there will be more that comes out of this. You know, we, we saw the, the uh, failed bid by uh, Mayor Breed to take over and uh, municipalize the assets of PG&E within yep. uh, the borders of San Francisco. Uh, but, you know, the, the ground upon which PG&E executives, uh, you know, re- declined her offer uh, seems to be getting pretty shaky at this point. We we saw the the share price dropping pretty low uh, when we were go recording to zero, earlier. Go to zero. Go it's, to zero. Go it, to zero. So there was actually a uh, <laughs> I saw an article by uh, talking about some some analysts I think with like Citigroup or something like that saying that there's a basically a 75 percent chance at this point that PG&E's stock price will actually go to zero. Um, at which point I think that it would be uh, inexcusable for California to not uh, just take it. But, you know, it's, I, I it's one just, of those things. I can just imagine them also, like, going the Walmart route and just cutting down all their transmissions lines and, like, throwing them in the dumpster and being like, well, oh nobody God. can have them now. Yeah, no, I'm really hoping that that can't happen, but we'll see. The, uh, the, the big thing here is that this is, this is a discussion that has really been taking off. Like, we've been shouting this from the hilltops 
uh, that are now all on fire uh, for a while now. I think it was, what, six six or eight months ago that we uh, started trying to get a petition going to talk about municipalizing PG&E when a lot of people yep. didn't even know what municipalizing PG&E meant. Uh, like the word municipalizing was very confusing for some folks. It's like, oh, oh, you mean make it public? Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, there is one word that works really well for describing that. And doesn't yep. specify whether it's going to be at the state level, the county level, the local. Just means municipalize. Make it public. So, um, yep. anyway, I uh, just wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, Rep. Rokana and say welcome to the club, sir. Uh, we are glad for your company and uh, let's keep this rolling forward. So, whoo. Yeah. Fun. And I got to say, that's one thing, you know, that separates Bernie and Warren right now on their climate plans and kind of their, their resiliency plans is Bernie's in favor of nationalizing utilities, municipalizing yeah. them. Uh, Elizabeth Warren hasn't come out in favor of that, and that's a real problem. Uh, she really needs to change that plank, um, and she needs to be movable on that. But this is a really good sign, and I hope we see more pickup on it. Because the other thing is, when we do away with these massive corporations, we can build the microgrids and the community resiliency that we need. You know, the kind of grid that you need in Tustin versus the kind yes. of grid that you need in downtown yes. LA versus the kind of grid you need in Sonoma. These are all different. These should be decided at a local level. Should be decided by the people there. The kind of portfolio they're going to use the way they're going to transmit power, how they're going to build that infrastructure, you know, instead of allowing PG&E to say, yeah, you know, we could bury our power lines, but man, our executives, they, they really need another Bentley. So we're going to just have to give all the money to them. Yeah, there's some like really shocking drone footage out there of like how, how bad the maintenance has gotten on these power lines. Like you can see some seriously rusting cables uh, and these are cables that are responsible for helping to transmit, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of volts of electricity across huge swaths of the California wilderness. And that failure to maintain that infrastructure leads directly to people's homes and livelihoods being destroyed and to people dying. Like, it is criminal what PG&E yeah. has been doing. And there has been no accountability for it. And it is well past time that we do something about it. Seizing their assets and making them into a public utility is the minimum that we should be doing. We well, should well, absolutely be talking about prosecuting these folks. Like PG&E has been found criminally liable in yes. the Tubbs fire. But that didn't lead to corporate death. It just le led to them uh, having to pay a fine, which they then just like passed along to ratepayers. Like corporate death, the corporate death penalty, something getting taken over by the state, really, really needs to be on the table. Like one hundred. You know, I also think like if you're an executive and your utility kills eighty five people, um, you should go to jail as long as we got them, you know, like until we abolish jails, like stick the CEOs in there. They can share cells yeah. with the ICE agents. Um, their determinations yeah. to like the way that they determined to spend that money is, is the, you know, directly resulted in people's dying. Like, yeah, if you, if your decisions on how you spend money and how you neglect the infrastructure that you're responsible for maintaining, if that, if those decisions kill people, that was, that was your fault. 100%. Let's, uh, let's move on to some other accountability and uh, criminal hey. legal system stuff. Uh, because, obviously, Jackie Lacey uh, is going to be up for re-election soon. Uh, but we also have a special election uh, coming up in San Francisco, which is directly related to our news about the L.A. district attorney's race. So let's untangle this a little bit, because it is sort of confusing. 
Uh, yeah, and also directly related, so that makes things fun. Um, all right, so on October 28th, San Francisco's former district attorney, George Gascon, officially announced that he will be challenging Jackie Lacey for the top prosecutorial position in Los Angeles County. Uh, Gascon is originally from Southern California and has a long history with law enforcement before being appointed to the office of the DA in San Francisco in 2011. He was previously an assistant chief in the LAPD and was also the uh, chief of police over in Mesa, Arizona, where he butted heads with America's favorite convicted and pardoned sheriff, Joe Arpaio. Uh, Gascon yeah, was I, also... I actually, I, I remember uh, some of Gascon's <laughs> term out here in Mesa, um, because Mesa was always like a, a very, you know, immigrant-heavy neighborhood out here, and one that really saw uh, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office overstep its bounds in trying to criminalize people, and with Sheriff Joe Arpaio, you know, going so far as to say, oh, if their police chief doesn't like me, I'm going to double the number of deputies I'm sending into those neighborhoods. Yeah, that's fucked up. Uh, Gascon was also one of the co-authors of Prop 47, which is a piece of legislation that, if you don't remember it, it reclassified a uh, large number of nonviolent offenses in the state of California and was passed overwhelmingly with 59% support at the ballot box. Uh, while law and order folks love to blame Prop 47 for quote-unquote increasing crime rates, um, as well as for like drug use and, and petty crime surrounding our homelessness epidemic, uh, the Public Policy not Institute true. of California has found that Prop 47 was not related to a minor uptake in crime that started prior to the introduction of the sentencing reform, and that Prop 47 has been extremely effective in reducing recidivism rates since it was implemented, making it a resounding success in criminal justice reform. So Prop 47 was good, folks. Ignore all the people that say that that's why things are falling apart in our homelessness situation. Um, yep. Quoting from the LA Times, quote, as San Francisco's district attorney Gascon enacted policies that provided alternatives to cash bail and expunged low-level marijuana convictions after Californians voted to legalize the sale of cannabis. In some ways, Lacey, our current DA, has mirrored those moves in recent months, launching a similar plan to wipe out marijuana convictions, end quote. So it's almost like Jackie Lacey is realizing, oh shit, somebody is actually going to be challenging me uh, from ostensibly from the left and actually at least looking at from a from a reformist perspective because uh, Gascon people have been talking about Gascon running for this office for quite a while now uh, it's basically been over the last year there have been discussions about whether or not he was going to be running um, and his candidacy is absolutely going to be opposed by a very a, a large number of members of the law enforcement community here in Los Angeles uh, who incidentally overwhelmingly support our current DA Jackie Lacey Probably something to do with the fact that she doesn't prosecute them when they break the rules. Uh, quoting from yep. Craig Lally, who is the president of the Los Angeles Police Protective League. Uh, again, cops should not have unions. He, quote, <laughs> he is the monopoly candidate for a Los Angeles County District Attorney. He created a statewide get-out-of-jail-free program named Prop 47, and the residents of California are paying a heavy price for this his misguided and misleading reform effort, end quote. Yeah, go fuck yourself, Craig Lally. Um, but former LAPD chief, uh, Charlie Beck, uh, who, you know, is not our chief anymore, uh, but was for uh, a while there before having to step back, uh, amidst his own scandals, he actually announced his support for Gascon in a, a statement that came out this Monday, the same day that he, that Gascon announced his candidacy, uh, quote, 
Taking on the status quo and reforming our most important institutions requires leadership, strength, and a commitment to doing the right thing, even when it comes at great personal cost. Those are the qualities that define George, end quote. So what's interesting here is that uh, there's actually been a, a, an open you know, discussion among folks from the LA Times. Like, so the LA Times has historically endorsed uh, Jackie Lacey in her last uh, two bids for office, I believe. Um, this year, yes. there was an open discussion around the fact that the LA Times is is uh, basically inviting somebody else to run against her because uh, they are not going to be endorsing her this time around. Uh, so she is, you know, inept at doing this job, and people in positions of power and authority are taking notice of that. Um, of course, the the you know Los Angeles Police Protective League uh, very much want to keep her in place because of that same inability to actually do her damn job. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this all shakes out. There was actually uh, an interesting anecdote I can share about um, something that happened at the Stonewall Democratic Club uh, just over a week ago, I believe. Uh, or actually, no, I think it was last weekend. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, this was an interesting one. Yeah, so there was basically a... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the Stonewall Democratic Club uh, decided to put out a, uh, a statement that is condemning Jackie Lacey for uh, failing to do her job. And uh, it, it, it ties in directly with these protests that have been happening in front of the Hall of Justice. And so there's a, a bit of a history here where whenever Jackie Lacey is scheduled to speak someplace, folks from BLM try to show up and uh, give her hell about it because, you know, she's failing to do her job. This is what you do when your elected officials are failing to do their job is you show up and you yell at them for failing to do their job. Now, she went to the, like, the Stonewall Democratic Club uh, invited her to come and, you know, basically answer for the, uh, for what they were about to, you know, condemn her for and, and provide, provide her with an opportunity to, to exculpate herself and, and, you know, provide some kind of rationalization of why she wasn't um, doing her job. And uh, so she decided to show up. She seems to have thought that, you know, Black Lives Matter was not going to uh, be there. Uh, but they actually, uh, the folks over at the Stonewall Democratic Club invited BLM members to come and be in attendance and allowed them to not only be in attendance and, and ask questions of Jackie Lacey, but also to uh, join the club and vote on the resolution condemning her. And then, uh, so that happened. And uh, basically, the, a lot of this also surrounded the, uh, the situation with like Ed Buck. Because yes. the, the um, I believe the actual statement was condemning her explicitly in connection with what happened with Ed Buck. And she basically came out and threw, uh, I believe it was either the coroner or the sheriff under the bus when it came to the the prosecution it was of the, Ed it Buck. was the well she threw the sheriff under the bus vis-a-vis -vis the coroner saying that the coroner had told the sheriff to conduct an illegal search yeah so basically there was a um you know a a procedural fuck up that she is blaming for the uh, lack of prosecution of Ed Buck for so long and this is of course obviously uh, a a very uh, an issue that is very near and dear to the hearts of the people in the Stonewall Democratic Club because their um, their base of power is in uh, the areas surrounding West Hollywood, and you know their their legacy is in the LGBTQ movement. And Ed Buck was explicitly preying on gay black men, and 
was a, a, a specter that was haunting that community. So yeah, this all came together to basically put some serious egg in the face of Jackie Lacey and put her on the defensive. And now it looks like she is ripe for uh, challenging, which really, you know, it ties in very well with why Gascon is announcing his bid because the Democratic uh, establishment in Los Angeles County has basically thrown up their hands and said, somebody please challenge Jackie because we cannot keep supporting her because uh, she is not the reformer that she claimed to be when she got elected. And she has just utterly failed to do her damn job. So uh, things are, are, are happening on that front, and it's going to be exciting to see how this all shapes up. Um, in an interview with the L.A. Times, Gascon responded to some of his critics within the rank and file of law enforcement here in L.A., saying, quote, If their beef with me is because I take a strong stand against excessive use of force against discriminatory practices, then their opposition is something that I welcome, end quote. So, uh, hell yeah, Gascon, like, I'm, I'm down with that. But at the same time, like, he's got a long track record of you know, being a member of law enforcement, which does give me yeah. pause. But, you know, this, like you mentioned earlier, Bushido, these the, you, you kind of in a lot of circumstances, you, you say, well, you know, is this electoral electoral politics movement uh, decision like supporting this candidate? Is it a step in the right direction? Uh, it looks to be absolutely, uh, you know, yeah. he's he's not Larry Krasner, but you know what? He's a hell of a lot better than what we have had for the last decade or so. And maybe things will continue to, to, to progress under him and uh, you know, maybe even move further to the left after uh, potentially if he wins or you know, another challenger comes out and we'll, we'll see what ends up happening. Um, so again, this, this, uh, this decision by Gascon to announce his candidacy really is coming as no surprise to anyone. Uh, following his announcement earlier this month, back on uh, October 2nd, when he announced that he would not be seeking re-election in San Francisco, uh, and he formally resigned as the San Francisco District Attorney two weeks later on October 18th. And that ties in with the next bit of things going on. So Yeah, I was going to say, you know, like, uh, before we move on to San Francisco, sure. one thing about Gascon versus Lacey is, you know, a lot of this campaign is against Lacey, the same way a lot of the sheriff's campaign was against McDonnell, and not just against him personally, but against the office, that by kicking out incumbents, you institutionally weaken those bureaucracies. And that's something we want to do. A bureaucracy that is settled, that has its hierarchy intact, is harder to reform and radically change. A hierarchy that has been disrupted, that is not sure of itself, that has leadership that is not established in place, much easier to reform later on. So that's something to consider when you're thinking about who to vote for DA, is voting against the incumbent is a good vote no matter what. Yeah, exactly. And then this also ties in with something uh, directly related to the sheriff's department that the LA Times did a really great piece on uh, a little while back when they were talking about the fact that you know, in the last, oh, geez, it's like, I think almost a century at this point, no incumbent uh, has been defeated before Villanueva beat McDonnell. And then in almost all of these circumstances, before a candidate runs for the office of the sheriff, they get appointed to be the sheriff by the board of supervisors leading up to, you know, about a year or so before the election. So that allows them to effectively gain this incredibly powerful incumbency advantage over any other potential challengers. So this is exactly the kind of thing with hap- which happened with uh, McConnell 
uh, McDonald rather getting uh, appointed following the uh, the fall from grace of Lee Baca. Uh, it happened for Lee Baca before that. Like this is a a tried and true procedure by people in positions of power to you know have one person step down so that their political ally or favorite could then be appointed to the position and then get this incumbency advantage, which uh, gives them a, a big step up in the polls uh, when it comes time to you know have them be quote unquote reelected. Uh, and this is exactly like when Gascon became the deputy, uh, sorry, the, the district attorney in San Francisco, he wasn't elected to that office when he, before he took it. He, he was appointed. And yes, the you know history is repeating itself. Uh, only this time, it's like extremely shameless in the way that it's being done. So, typically, when a district attorney is resigning from office this close to an election, and we mean we're saying, you know, he announced in uh, on October second that he was going to be stepping down. The replace the election. Uh, I, I don't think it was a special. It's a special election because they they were already campaigning for this. Uh, the election is taking place on Tuesday. Like we're talking just yep. over a month from when he announces that he's not seeking reelection to when the actual election is taking place, you know, and he resigned formally on October 18th, less than three weeks before the election, which is coming up again on Tuesday or just around three weeks, regardless, three weeks. Like this is not a lot of days. So uh, normally what you would see Though is I, that I do have to say like uh, the, the election had been in full swing before that because the yes. election was pre-scheduled. Yeah, yeah. So like uh, his challengers like Chesa Bowden have been running for the last like several months, but it yes. didn't really get pick up until Gascon finally said, no, I'm not going to run. Yes, that's very true. So uh, again, typically when a district attorney is resigning from this office, the next person in the chain of command is the one who takes over. In the case of San Francisco, following Gascon's departure, it would have made sense to see his chief of staff or maybe one of the deputy district attorneys take over because it's three fucking weeks. But instead, Mayor London Breed, one of our favorites here in uh, you know a rising star in California politics, appointed her political ally and one of the four prominent candidates for the office, Susie Loftus, as the interim district attorney, effectively giving her a massive incumbency advantage just three weeks before the election this coming Tuesday. So, and I got to say, when we when we call Breed one of our favorites, we're being very <laughs> ripping in sarcasm. Ah, uh, yeah. So, at the swearing-in ceremony for Loftus, Mayor Breed told reporters that, "quote Despite what happens in this upcoming election, my goal is to make sure that we have strong leadership in this office, so that we can continue to work to address public safety in the city." End quote. Uh, Leif Douch, who is another challenger uh, for the office told reporters uh, that he was deeply disappointed in the move by Mayor Breed and said that, quote, I think to have an interim appointment for these 18 days and potentially a new DAA coming in after that really destabilizes an office that is already hurting, end quote. Um, mm -hmm. it, which makes sense. You know, uh, it's hard for anyone to, you know, really get up to speed with how an office works and to start doing anything in like the first couple of weeks that they're doing a job, let alone potentially only holding that job for 18 days. So uh, last week, 
Loftus ended up, uh, she ended one of the most progressive programs that did come out of Gascon's tenure, something that didn't really get a lot of attention at the time, but is a pretty big win from a, from a progressive uh, reform uh, side of things, which was this diversion program that allowed first-time DUI offenders who didn't injure anyone to avoid strict punishment. So, quote, in order to qualify, this is uh, pulling from the San Francisco Examiner or the Chronicle, I forget which, It'll be in the, the link will be in the description. Uh, quote, in order to qualify, offenders had to have a blood alcohol content between 0.08% and 0.16%. Defendants in the diversion program could agree to undergo behavioral therapy in exchange for having the charge dismissed, end quote. This program was a move that was made by Gascon to really cut down on the number of folks uh, and, and misdemeanor cases that were basically just clogging the court calendars in the San Francisco Hall of Justice. Uh, this is a, a problem that we see here in Los Angeles as well. Like we have a, a, a complete a completely inadequate number of courtrooms, judges, and staff within our judicial system, within the city and state level, uh, to handle the number of of of, of uh, alleged crimes that have been you know charged against folks, and it ends up really just uh, hobbling our, our our judicial system and, and making these cases take forever to go through. Which then, in a lot of circumstances, especially you know because our our, our pitiful attempts at bail reform in this state still leave tons of people locked up with no, basically no recourse. Uh, if you are waiting for your trial to happen and you're stuck waiting in jail, that just destroys your ability to, to lead a normal life. Even if you end up being, um, you know, found not guilty and, and being released, like your life has been upended. You've lost your apartment. You've lost your job. You you may have lost custody of your kids because you were, you know, imprisoned awaiting trial. Like there are all of these ways in which our, you know, unwillingness to properly uh, staff and you know provide infrastructure through our our uh, our criminal punishment system. Uh, you know, if we're going to be arresting all these people, we need to. We, they deserve a fucking speedy trial. And this well, was and a move to try that, to do that. Just- even beyond that, just fully funding, you know, a society that has yes. adequate mental health care and substance abuse counseling, public transit, so you're not stuck in a position where, like, yeah. you're driving home from the bar. Like, there's so many things that lead to this happening, and so many times DUI arrests and checkpoints and saturation patrols are used in working-class neighborhoods to punish the people who can least afford these kinds of bills. You know, they're not doing saturation patrols in Beverly Hills and, like, no. Homely Hills. They don't do no. that there. They do them in Koreatown. They do them in Huntington Park. They do it in places where they know working class people live. Yep. So uh, basically, again, Loftus, in this short time that she's in office, has uh, pulled the plug on this because uh, she wants to be seen as tough on crime. Um, and also ending this program is, is seen as a direct challenge to the progressive agenda that's being championed by uh, Chesa Boudin, who is uh, a fantastic candidate. Uh, his personal story is absolutely amazing. Uh, there's a really, really, really good interview um, of Chessa by the folks over at The Intercept uh, that you can get by uh, finding it in the um, in the Intercepted podcast. Uh, we'll put a link to that as well. It's uh, really just an incredibly powerful background on the story of where Chessa is coming from. You know what his. Uh, what his bedrock for his his beliefs really is like his parents were both 
lefty radicals that were arrested and, and you know, while he was growing up, he has extremely early childhood memories of, of visiting his, his parents in prison. Uh, it's, it's really just uh, extremely moving to listen to what happened uh, in his background, why he got involved with what he's doing. He's a public defender. He is uh, actually a champion for the kinds of reform that we desperately need in our our criminal justice system here in California. And And he also uh, uh, just picked up the endorsement of uh, Tiffany Caban from uh, New York, who uh, almost won the district attorney's race uh, and then was quite literally cheated out of it at the very last minute. Uh, in order for the centrist establishment candidate to coast into office by uh, the the local uh, electoral officials deciding that you know several thousand ballots they just don't they don't count we're not gonna yep. we're not gonna count those ballots and that just so happens to flip the lead so yeah by like um, two hundred votes you know, it was absurd yeah so keep an eye on on the uh, the DA race in San Francisco because there's gonna be a lot of other shady stuff going down there not that there already isn't from what I understand the the local police union up there is yeah. making some really big entrances and spending a lot of money in what's generally a down ballot and not a big money race. Yeah, so uh, quoting from the San Francisco Examiner here, quote, San Francisco's police union and other law enforcement groups have shelled out more than $654,000 as of Thursday morning on a campaign to paint a candidate for district attorney as dangerous. The massive figure includes $400,000 in television ads paid for by the San Francisco Police Officers Association to oppose top prosecutor hopeful Chesa Boudin. So, yeah, the cops do not want Chesa to win this office. And if the if the cops are saying that they don't want somebody to, you know, win the office of the DA, nah, they're probably a good a good candidate for that office because they desperately do not want to be seen the kinds of reforms that we definitely need here in California. And uh, it is also heartening to see like SEIU is heavily involved with an with a uh, a uh, one of these political uh, independent expenditure campaigns that is supporting Chesa. Uh, so they've uh, they've dumped um, something like two hundred thousand dollars into it as well. This is a this is a fight that like, you're not. The most money that had been spent on this was, I believe, something like $1.8 million total in the 2011 election that first uh, confirmed the appointment of, uh, of Gascon for this office. It's that, that number is being just dwarfed at this point, um, mainly by these folks who have a vested interest in trying to keep Chessa out of it. And, I mean, it's really, really telling to see that Mayor Breed hopped in and uh, you know, Loftus probably would, you know, there, there was going to be a hell of a race if Loftus didn't have that incumbency advantage. And I mean, I'm really, really hoping to see that that race uh, can still be won despite that advantage. Uh, and so uh, everybody get out there and knock on some doors for Chesa because, man, we need him. We need him. Yeah, no, it would be a great change to see a progressive DA going on up in San Francisco, to see more movement towards uh, doing away with the criminalization of people who are unhoused, uh, not prosecuting crimes of poverty, uh, basically like doing the stuff that we know we need to do to cut back against the carceral state. And we know Susie Loftus isn't going to do that. Like, Susie Loftus is really excited to throw people in jail in a city that needs money spent on services and housing for people, in a city that has undergone absolutely insane levels of gentrification and is becoming more and more unequal all the time. And Chesa Boudin is a really good answer to that. If you get the chance and you got some time this weekend, 
do some phone banking. Uh, if you have friends in San Francisco, just yell at them to go vote for Cheza. Uh, and, and I gotta say, like, Cheza, uh, I, I believe, uh, worked with Ace because Ace, before yes. he came to the LA County uh, Public Defender's Office, they both uh, worked under Jeff Adachi, who is one of the most radical public defenders uh, in the nation, or was before he passed away very uh, suddenly uh, last year. Uh, but, like, this is a chance to get an actual champion for the people and the people who are most impacted by our criminal legal system into office. And I really, really hope San Francisco turns out and does that. So let's uh, let's move towards the end of this with a couple of pickups. Uh, one thing we didn't mention at the top that uh, I do want to mention, uh, by the time you're listening to this, Greta Thunberg will have done her speech in LA. Uh, obviously, we can't cover that and do our recording in the morning because you know that's how time works. Um, but Chris, <laughs> you're heading out to that, so we'll yep. talk about that a little bit next week. I'm sure it's going to get plenty of media coverage. Big shout out to our friends at Youth Climate Strike, Sunrise Movement, all of the other groups that helped organize this that have been doing an absolutely amazing job holding our elected officials' feet to the fire, quite literally, when it comes to climate change and the yes. climate crisis and the issues that we need to be tackling to solve this. This is on the heels of big actions at uh, Porter Ranch, at a uh, Kamala Harris fundraiser, uh, chasing Gavin Newsom away from his own fundraiser. Like, we're coming for y'all. Like, we know where you're going to be talking to wealthy donors, and we're not going to let you forget that working Californians are suffering and dying in sacrifice zones, not just in wildfire season, but under the absolutely disgusting and polluted air that's coming out of the Port of Los Angeles, the 710 corridor, the refineries in Torrance and Wilmington, the massive oil facility, like oil extraction facilities in places like Culver City, um, and uh, uh, the gas storage facility in Aliso Canyon. Like, L.A. is a sacrifice zone, and come hell or high water, we're going to fix that. Hell yeah. Uh, but we've got some other stuff to talk about, Chris. So what's going on next week that people can check out? Well, so as always, Black Lives Matter uh, will be hosting their weekly vigil on Wednesday uh, at 211 West Temple in downtown, as as usual. Uh, the, visual, the vigil will be starting at 4 and running until 6. Uh, we're not doing anything new and exciting this week. It's back to, you know, the matter at hand of just demanding uh, that Jackie Lacey get out of office uh, because she sucks at doing her job. Uh, we've also got a number of Los Angeles Tenants Union meetings coming up this week uh, after a, a quiet week this past week. So they've got a general meeting happening on Monday evening. Uh, that's going to be happening between 7 and 9 p.m. on November 4th at UTLA, 3303 Wilshire Boulevard on the 8th floor. Uh, they also have a sustainability meeting that's happening between 7 and 9 on Tuesday. Uh, details about that uh, you'd have to go find on the website by RSVPing. Uh, the West Side local meeting is going to be happening on Wednesday, November 6th from 6.30 to 8.30 at the Oakwood Rec Center, 767 California Avenue in Venice. Uh, the East Hollywood local is going to be happening the same night from 7 to 9 at 5500 Hollywood Boulevard, 4th floor. The Mid-City local uh, is going to be happening the same night as well from 7 to 9 at uh, Union 4308, which is at 4067 West Pico. Uh, the media team is also going to be meeting that night. Uh, go on the website to check for details on that. Uh, the Vibe local, as always, is going to be meeting on Thursday, November 7th from 7 to 9 p.m., right when we're having a ground game meeting. Uh, they meet at UTLA 3303 Wilshire on the 10th floor. 
Uh, and then, of course, Ground Game will be meeting as usual. We didn't meet this past week, but we will be meeting uh, this coming week. Uh, you know, having a meeting on Halloween just didn't really work for everybody. Um, but yeah, come out and say hi and join us. Sit down and let's talk about all of the stuff going on and how you can get involved. As usual, it's at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard, starting at 7.30, and we basically wrap up by about 9, unless things get uh, real crazy. But that doesn't happen all that often, and we, you know, we like to sit down, welcome new folks, get some actual work done, in addition to catching up and hearing about what all has been happening for folks in the actions that they're involved with. So... And I want to I want to give a big shout out real quick for anyone who's like interested in doing this kind of work that me and Chris have done uh, that wants to write for knock that wants to get involved in the kind of media stuff that we're doing. Uh, you can do that. And we would love to have you. Knock is always looking for writers. We're going to be holding some trainings about how you can publish for Knock, which isn't really all of that hard. We're upping our game. We're always looking for more patrons. So if you want to go to patreon.com slash knock underscore LA, you can throw us a couple of bucks so that we can pay writers, so we can expand our reach. But more than anything, if you have things to say, come and let us help you say them to a wider audience. We want to do that. We aren't building this platform because... Uh, we like the sound of our own voices, which I mean, I'm absolutely in love with the sound of my own voice. <laughs> but beyond that, we want As more mine, voices clearly. and we yes. want your voice and you can come do this stuff too. So if you think like, hey, Tim and Chris are doing like great stuff uh, and I want to do that too, come join us. If you think these two are idiots and I can do better, come join us. Hell yeah. uh, we can use all of the energy and we would absolutely love to have you. Absolutely. And before we like, I cannot believe that we didn't cover this earlier in the podcast, but a huge shout out to all of the folks that went down to the border and got, uh, you know, did some action back Not there during guilty. the Loves No Borders uh, protest. And uh, one of our ground game members, uh, Wendy Baranka, she and her fellow protesters were arrested, were charged with, you know, civil disobedience effectively. And as you just mentioned, Bushido, they were found not guilty uh, back on uh, on Monday this week, which is a huge victory for everyone who has a fucking conscience and wants to make sure that uh, the way that this administration is treating our southern border uh, is you know called out and that people start to actually treat it as the humanitarian crisis that it is rather than as, as an opportunity for uh, these armed thugs to shoot at brown people. So uh, hell yeah, Wendy and all of your allies. Y'all are fucking amazing. Great job, everybody who was involved with going down there, providing that court support. Uh, this was amazing. We also had, uh, before I forget, the, uh, the People's Action Summit that happened over the weekend. Uh, unfortunately, Bernie wasn't able to make it because his doctor literally said, you can't go to this. You need to do, you know, you need to do it by video instead. Um, but Andrew Yang showed up and made a complete fucking fool of himself in front of the entire group. And uh, Bernie was awesome. He had a lot of really great answers. Uh, Julian Castro was also apparently not too shabby, but Andrew Yang proved himself to be just as disconnected and idiotic as we had all kind of feared he would be. Uh, and his answers about how to deal with the housing crisis in California and across this country, uh, basically, I mean, we all know that he's a one trick pony and that UBI is the only thing he knows. And he thinks that it is a, a solve to heal all wounds. Uh, I mean, his, his climate policy is literally take the money I'm going to give you and run to the fucking hills because we can't do anything to stop this. And his housing plan is apparently take the no, money I'm going to give no, you and also, then buy a house. <laughs> 
No, he's also got some really stupid geoengineering ideas. Oh, uh, yeah, I forgot about those. Plan. Yeah, no, yeah, he's an like idiot. terraform the earth, and it's like, let's not. Yeah, let's not do that. Um, I, but... I saw Snowpiercer, and I'm not a fan. <laughs> uh, by the way, the director of Snowpiercer, uh, Wong Jun Ho, uh, and he also yep. just recently released in New York and Los Angeles uh, a movie called Parasite. Uh, which is it's out nationwide now. It is. Oh my God! Everyone yeah. should go see it. I it still haven't amazing. seen it. I really need to before it's it leaves amazing. Phoenix because they only keep those movies around for a week. It's so good, and it's an incredible satire. Uh, just a biting social commentary. Go watch it. It was great. Uh, cannot recommend it enough. Um, and yeah, so the, thanks for reminding me about that with the Snowpiercer reference. So uh, anyway. To actually wrap things up, as always, if y'all have any events that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of, send us a message through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or send an email over to podcast at groundgamela.org. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Ground Game LA, at Bushido Squirrel, at Christopher Roth, over on Instagram at Ground Game LA, and of course, like and follow the Ground Game LA Facebook page for all of our live streamed content from actions around the city, as well as links from Knock. And of course, you can read the stories uh, that our comrades and sometimes the two of us are dabbling a bit with over at knock.la. If you'd like to read the sources that we're citing or quoting for yourself, check out the list of articles cited in the episode description on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening to us. And uh, have a great weekend and a great week next week. To celebrate Greta Thunberg coming to L.A., yeah. I just want to remind you to liberate yourself from the fantasies of endless economic growth and focus on building a world that is survivable and works for everyone. Thank you all very much. Be safe God, out there with the fires so still going on. Yeah. Have yourself a great week. Yep. Thanks, y'all.